Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast, a show where I speak to architects who have found success in their business, marketing, and communications, as well as consultants and experts who will share their unique tips and strategies to help you attract your ideal clients. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, marketing consultant for architects. And if you'd benefit from professional advice and guidance on your marketing, you can head to vanityprojects.com to check out my coaching services and book in a free 30-minute consultation to discuss your situation. Today's episode is sponsored by Bowbird, and I'd like to thank Bowbird for jumping on board and supporting the show. I've known Nick and Ben, the founders, for years and seen their platform grow from this small startup in Melbourne to now being all over the world with reach into China, the UK, Europe, and the US. If you've seen other architects and interior designers getting lots of media coverage all over the place and wondered, hey, how do they do that? There's a good chance they're using Bowbird, and that's because many of the best publications in the world source their content through Bowbird, like Wallpaper, Frame, Arc Daily, and many more. It's very easy to use as well. So if you've ever had a project professionally photographed, then you've got everything you need to get started. You just upload your project and start submitting it to your favorite magazines, newspapers, and websites. So if you'd like to find out more, I have a previous episode of the podcast with the co-founder, Ben Morgan, titled Figuring Out the Architectural Media. It's episode 12. Or if you just want to use Bowbird and try it out for yourself, then head over to bowerbird.io. Joining me on the show today is Glenn Chamberlain and Pom Kimber from Chamberlain Architects, a high-end residential practice based in Melbourne. In this episode, we discuss the importance of working with the best photographers, stylists, visualization artists, and copywriters, and why they believe investing significantly to create compelling project content is worth the cost. We looked at how Instagram has been integral to the studio's growth in the past, but why they see attention moving towards new channels going forward. We talked about why the studio believes being helpful, educational, and taking stress off the client is a key point of difference in the eyes of potential clients, no matter their budget. And finally, we looked at how the launch of Room, their new business that offers limited edition home designs with fixed upfront project costs, has revealed surprisingly effective marketing strategies that can be applied to the typical architecture practice as well. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Glenn and Pom from Chamberlain Architects. Pom and Glenn, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No problems. Thank you. It's very exciting to have you both on. I thought we'd start off with maybe a little bit of a background on Chamberlain and an overview of what you guys do and what you're working on. Chamberlain has had a few incarnations over the years and its current one, I suppose, is about... Oh, it's almost 10 years old now. And that is really when I took over the practice just was effectively just me. A few business partners went our separate ways and it became Chamberlain Architects. So that's kind of 10 years now. We've been through a few different stages. Pom is obviously my wife and she has become a huge component to the business. What we're working on, I suppose, is we've always considered ourselves to be a residential practice, first and foremost. And originally we did a lot of multi-res as well as private residential. But as we've gone on, we're swinging more towards that private residential practice and the multi-res is becoming less and less important to the business. And that change over time in terms of thinking about what the practice does as a specialty. And at times there's been Mm. a broader range of projects and then you've eventually found that niche that you've gotten comfortable in. At what point did that start to develop when you felt we're starting to find our groove and this is what we're known for and what we like doing best? It happened reasonably recently. For a while there, we were doing multi-res as a way to keep the practice 
going. You know, when we started out, I think we always said private residential work is the hardest work to get when you're a young firm and you don't necessarily have a huge reputation. So we always knew we wanted to be doing residential work. So we thought, well, we'll split it between multi-res and private res. And the multi-res is something you can market. It was a, it, I felt it was a lot easier to market towards and to be able to get those projects. So it was kind of the bread and butter of our practice where we would do the multi-res and then we might jag a, a, a private res project and that was the work we wanted. As we've done a few more projects, we, we have found that it's easier to sort of uh, attract those clients through our marketing endeavours and having projects to market. So we feel like now we're in a situation where we can maybe leave some of that multi-res behind and focus more on the private res. So initially, a lot of practices start off with the private residential work because that's what their kind of initial network is and they will Mm. have friends or family or people that they know that they can get that private residential work from. And then it starts to, after a couple of years in, maybe that network has been exhausted and it tends to peter out a little bit or it can do. And as you mentioned, you're a new practice, you don't have a big reputation, but Mm. you have that has to happen at a certain point to get back into that private work and have it come from outside, right? Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny because like I didn't necessarily have that network of family and friends. I, I, I started in Perth and I moved to, to Melbourne in 1997. So I came over and I didn't have that connection over here. And I'd worked at a number of practices and I had a, good, a lot of connection with developers. And that's how we got the multi-res work. So my connection was through the multi-res work, developer land. And then we were fortunate that we were able to do a few of these developers' private houses. And that was a starting point for us to get those bigger budgets and those bigger projects. We'd always tried to find those house projects and we had a few along the way and they were lovely. And But it was really that situation where we had that critical mass of developer clients who wanted us to do their own houses. And it gave us that boost that we needed to get that critical mass of work up and about for our practice. So it was a different sort of network. It wasn't family and friends. It was working for developers, kind of having a great rapport with them and then them having known about our private resi work and getting us to do that sort of stuff. Yeah, because a lot of small practices or new practices, they're kind of puzzled by how do we get the bigger and better projects or how do we go through that organic evolution as a practice and get to that point where you do have that critical mass. And it's a very kind of stressful thing to worry about, but is there maybe a strategy in there somewhere? Like maybe you don't do the private resi, but you try and work somewhere where you could then do homes for them or is there a a sort of a sideways route into it? Yeah. I think that's a, I don't know. I feel like that's a pretty unique strategy. I don't know if I think (laughs) that's a high risk strategy. It's a high risk strategy. It's flanking, outflanking your opposition. Yeah. I don't know about that as a strategy. I just think that's the way we got there. I mean, I had always wanted to be in a practice or or doing private residential work. That's what I was most interested in when I was studying. And it's one of the main reasons I moved to Melbourne in, you know, the late 90s, because the work over here was incredible. And so I don't know, like it was, it's something that I've always been interested in. And you're right, it's really daunting to be able to try and get that work. And uh, yeah, it's a tricky one. It really is. But it does feel like we needed to get some critical mass to, to be able to convince those clients that when we're talking to them about how we can deliver their house and deliver their home, that we have some runs on the board. And I know that's really difficult for small for, small, uh, for up and coming practices, but I think I always looked at other practices that I admired and we never did this, but the traditional route was to have that 
one project that you were able to get into the awards and, and win awards and whether that was a family member's house or a friend's house. And I, I thought that was the way we had to do it, but we couldn't, we didn't have that network to be able to engage in it that way. And we had to find a different way of doing it whilst sustaining a business that had to provide for us as a family and provide for the staff. So I don't think we could just hang our hats on the, the intermittent sporadic private res clients coming along. We needed to have that backbone of multi-res, which is what it provided for that for us during that time. Interesting. You didn't really get to choose your clients necessarily for the private res work that came from the word of mouth from the developers, right? It was those were the opportunities that were in, in front of us. And did you yeah. feel at the time that those clients were the right fit in terms of residential clients for private resi? Or did you feel that we're just happy to be working on this work at the moment and we're not going to be as maybe picky or selective about who we fit with as a client? It was interesting. The very first job that I got, which was a private commission, I was working at a firm and a developer had tapped me on the shoulder and said, we loved working with you there. Would you consider doing my penthouse fit out? And it was an in predominantly interiors fit out. And for me, it was just a huge opportunity. So whilst like he was obsessed with putting this aquarium in, in the entry of this thing, and I'm not in a huge aquarium guy, but, you know, at that point in time, that's what it was an opportunity that presented itself. And I think architects are incredibly optimistic, especially architects that set up their own firms. And every brief I, I get, whether it's on the surface, it doesn't look like it's going to be a good one. I always trick my mind into thinking it's going to be awesome. So every opportunity we get, I've, I'm always excited about it. It's maybe <laughs> further down the track, I get a little bit disillusioned with some of it. But no, I think I think private res is just one of those things where there's always opportunity within the brief to do something interesting and, and compelling. Yeah, I always find the podcast guests fall into two camps. There's either they're they're perfect in the very first meeting, or we get rid of them, or we're glass half full and go, hey, we'll work yeah. our way through this and we, you can't judge a yeah. book by its cover. But yeah, it sounds look, like you're in that camp. Yeah. I mean, increasingly now we are a little bit more critical or a little bit more discerning in, in, in the projects we choose because we're fortunate that there's a lot of inquiry coming across our desk. Sometimes it's just, it might be a great project, but it's not a great project for our practice where we are now. But equally, if I had been presented with that same opportunity <laughs> 10 or 15 years ago, I probably would have jumped at it. And so, yeah, I think it's just an evolution. The practice evolves and you can become more discerning. Pom, when you're doing a lot of the front-end marketing and thinking about the website and the social media and all of that stuff, you, you probably have an idea of that client that you're looking for in mind. Do you have some thoughts on what that kind of Chamberlain client is or who that good fit client might be that you're going out there and trying to attract? Look, I, I think we're pretty respectful. We don't like to judge and it's almost like, yeah, we don't like to have too many preconceived ideas. So that's weird from a marketing perspective because I know you've got to have your demographics and you know, you've got to gear yourself towards a certain audience and tone of voice. But within that broad audience of people that love beautiful architecture and that live in Melbourne or Victoria. We're not too judgmental. We want to keep a pretty open mind. And I do think as a studio, we are quite a humble bunch of people. And it's back to Glenn's um, eternal positivity, <laughs> glass half full. We, we really don't see ourselves as these big, 
mean, scary architects that pass judgment on people. And I think that's a very important thread that runs underneath our marketing. So we try and, and engage with people and be approachable. On the other side of the coin, though, I mean, without talking about judging potential clients, do, do you have a sense of what you maybe are trying to avoid as a practice in terms of that good fitting client these days? Now that you do have more inquiries coming across the desk, are there any key things that you're looking to steer away from as a practice over time? Yeah, look, I think we're always like that question about what are we looking for in a client? I think what we're looking for is aspiration and we're looking for someone that is interested in what we can bring to the table. I'm just thinking about some recent inquiry that we've had and they like your work, but they come and see you and they say, we already know what we want and we just want you to yeah, effectively draw it up for us. It's, ne- it's never that, cr- that never comes across as that crude when they say it, but you can get a sense that they're not really up for the process. And, and I find it's just so important to have these conversations with clients, which has been interesting over the last couple of years via Zoom, doing it via Zoom and stuff. But I find that meeting face-to-face and just having these quite often long and rambling conversations, you can really get a sense of what a person's really trying to achieve with a project. And I think that's that sort of decision in the back of our mind, whether that's a project we really want to pursue or we, whether we might say we're not quite right or we're, we're, yeah, we're too busy or something like that. But yeah, I was curious to find out a little bit more about that in terms of the sales process because it's one. It, it once you start getting more inquiries as a more established practice, it's you start to have this pressure to start to minimise the time spent, do more filtering, do more triaging, so that you can process more of these inquiries and not become overwhelmed by things. But obviously, the downside yeah. is you don't get that time, um, that face-to-face time as much, and you don't get to discover those hidden gems yeah. if you were just trying to filter them with a form or something like that. So how do you go about it? Or what's your process when um, an inquiry comes in the door and going into that first call, that first meeting? What's the typical process for you? Look, we've been debating this a lot lately. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and things and heard a lot of ideas about welcome packs and all these sorts of different ways. Try and get that information out to the client and almost let them self-qualify. And we've experimented with that and trying to, you don't want to come out and brutally just ask what your budget is, but I, I tend to approach that very early on in, in the conversation as a way of qualifying it. And usually I do it in a way where I say, well, what's the size of the house that you're looking to kind of, you know, how many rooms, how big is this thing? And then look at that from a square metre rate and it's just try and provide them with some information around what a budget will be. And that very quickly, that kind of will give me a sense of whether that's a project we could deliver on or whether that's just not in the ballpark. But if what going back to your question, what's the filter process like? It's it all, at the moment, it's still all coming through me and whether that's me picking up the phone and calling them back or going and having that meeting that I mentioned earlier. So it's wildly inefficient, but I also really enjoy it. It's one of those things where I feel like I can get a really good handle on if it's going to be a great project. And I also feel like I've got a much better strike rate when I'm face-to-face with someone than if I'm just on the phone or sending them an email and that sort of thing. I don't know how sustainable that is as it, as it kind of ramps up. And, you know, they're, they're, but yeah, at the moment, that's what we're doing. It's pretty old school, I think. But it's interesting as you work with clients that have pretty, you know, significant budgets, you're probably a bit desensitized or acclimatized to those larger budgets. And it doesn't affect how you approach that initial process. But 
Do you think that bigger budget clients have a different set of expectations about what an architect should or shouldn't be doing at that early stage of the sales process? Well, look, there's some people that have been through the process before and we might be their second or third architectural project that they've done. And, and yeah, those people have an expectation and we've had a couple of clients come to us with an expectation of what they don't want and they've had a bad experience or they've just not gelled with someone. or So those clients are a little bit more educated and, and they do have an expectation. But like a lot of times people might be coming to you and it's the first time they've used an architect and they might have two to $3 million to spend on a house and they're still just looking for guidance. No different to someone that's coming to us with a seven hundred. $800,000 renovation budget, they're still looking to you as the architect to guide them through this process. There might be less drawings in the 700000 than the $3 million, but that idea of taking someone through the process and explaining it and then the design process, it's very similar. The scale's just different. So do you find that sometimes with the bigger budget clients that they typically may have gone through the process more times? Because it's quite uncommon to mm. build an architect design home multiple times in a lifetime. Yep. That's a quite a big exercise yeah. to go through. But do you find that, that is maybe a little bit more common as those budgets start to increase? Yeah, like especially when it's someone's holiday home. If it's a yep. substantial holiday home, they might have had a substantial home built in Melbourne or in a suburb somewhere and they're looking for something, they might be looking for something different stylistically or design-wise, or they might, as I said, have just want a change of architect. So we have got a few of those clients where they've done it before. And you, you can tell when that's happened that they're pretty open and forthright about it. And I suppose that in that situation, you're really just trying to explain your process and how you go about it more than anything else. But yeah, as I said, like increasingly the budgets are getting bigger. And I don't know if that's just because people want are wanting bigger and bigger houses. That's a, and the combination of that and the kind of construction prices going up. Once upon a time, it was one and a half million bucks was a good budget. And now it's kind of, you know, that's you, you're sort of t sitting there telling the client, well, we need to be careful with this budget. It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not huge, but it's, yeah. So it's a different kind of environment that we're, we're in now with budgets and house sizes. Pom, I'm interested in one of the biggest challenges of these bigger projects. And as the projects get bigger, the time they take to design and build gets longer and longer. And you have an issue that never goes away, which is gaps between projects, which is what every architect has to deal with and come to terms with that it's going to be six months until we have anything we can shoot or 12 months until we've got mm. anything we can shoot. And I guess I'm just interested in, in, in maybe moving into that area of thinking about ways that you've managed to become a very good recycler and reuser when it comes mm. to project content. <laughs> I am an, an excellent recycler and reuser <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of the fact. I think we all have to do it. It's just a reality. And I think that's fine. Once you accept that, you run with it. I'm lucky enough, my background is graphic design. So I'm not an architect. I'm a graphic designer. I came from a branding background. So I suppose that that allowed me to try and be a bit creative with content and then I get involved with art direction and creative direction of photo shoots and what have you. But yes, recycling. It was very interesting. We had this really weird phase where we were just starting to do a couple of beautiful big single residential projects and they, for some one reason or another, the clients were very private, extremely private, and did not want them photographed. It was a very positive relationship, beautiful outcome. But these two houses 
took two years to build and we couldn't photograph them. And it was absolutely tragic because they were beautiful and they represented two years of building and design and what have you. And that was our proudest moment. We'd reached these pinnacles. So I had to be very creative and I'm just trying to think back to what I did. But, you know, obviously there was, for example, we had permission to photograph the exterior so we got a couple of really nice images of the exterior well we, um, we kind of we took, well we didn't we didn't have when ex- i say we got permission we didn't have explicit <laughs> but you know when but we were on the street with a photographer and they looked really nice from the street and it was very nicely lit and shot so we got some nice exterior shots we trawled through the builders iphone shots and our own site photos I did a lot of Photoshop (laughs) work on those and you do have to get your hands a bit dirty and try and really get the best. It's about curating some images out of uh, the usual trashy range of iPhone images, but we've all been there. So, yeah, I obviously got some images out of that. They weren't great. Another strategy is getting some proper renders done. We used to be quite um, standoffish about using renders in Instagram feed, for example, or on our website. And I suppose we've really turned around completely on that and we've seen the value of really good quality renders. Now, they cost you an arm and a leg and it's about as much as a photo shoot and the only challenge is you then can't use them for editorial that doesn't attract print. But every now and then if we have like a really long project and we've got a couple at the moment that we won't see them built for another two years and they're absolutely beautiful. So we just made the decision to invest in some renders and they've come up that we didn't get many for cost reasons, but they came up really well and they got an amazing response on Instagram. So I I just think you have to be really open-minded about how you can just keep creating these images over and above waiting for a project to finish and photographing it. You touched on something there, which is an interesting challenge of sometimes bigger budget projects, which is ultra private, secretive, Mm. under the radar clients Mm. that don't want anybody looking at their house. Mm. They don't want anybody Mm. seeing what they've got going on. And yeah, it can be an absolute disaster when you find out at the last minute that no, they're not going to have that photographer come over to Mm. their place. And I guess like having been through that situation, is there anything you can do preventative around that in the future? Have you started having that conversation with clients a little bit more, just gauging their feelings about that or? I think it's fair to say that there is a little more we can do and some architects we know have it written into their contract well, yeah. that they I mean, have access to photography at the end of it, which is... We had that written into those contracts too. So Oh, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> That's right. So it's a really tricky one. We do try and weave it into the conversation and start building that rapport whereby, you know, we'd love to get it photographed and try and... I suppose manage their expectations around what's involved and really plan ahead. So it's more getting inside their minds and just planting the seed. The heartbreaking thing about those two projects that we couldn't photograph was, you know, for both the builder and the uh, and us as architects, it represented such a a huge body of work over two years. Longer. And we even wrote a letter. We explained. We had (laughs) several phone conversations, and they just would not. And that it was in their contract, but they just would not relent. So sometimes you just have to move on. But yeah, I think it's just really about managing expectations with clients and really just painting the picture of how important it is and also helping them get a little bit excited about it as well. Not everyone's into it, but I think there is a bit of pride in having your 
residents photographed and you can keep them private. You can publish without any reference to the people and the address and you just run all those scenarios by them so they feel really comfortable about it. And But I think we try and build up that pride that they should be proud and, and it's lovely to have a, a body of photographs to represent this, you know, work of art that is their house. This will seem very obvious to you guys, but I want to talk about this idea of working with very good photographers and spending an arm and a leg on renderers and not being mm. budget conscious or cutting corners when it comes to project photography because some practices are definitely tempted to go, God, why would I spend that much money on photography? I can get cousin Jim to come and shoot that thing. Yeah. He's got a camera. There's sometimes a real corner that gets cut there. So I guess at what point did you begin really picking the cream of the crop in terms of photography and that sort of thing? Yeah, we, so as I said, alluded to earlier, I practice, we had a couple of business partners previously and we, we would do photo shoots, but we would do them in a very half-hearted way. And there was always this kind of concern that we were spending too much money on it and there was three three partners and it was always a, a bit of an argument about whether what we should and shouldn't be doing so when it came to the point where it was just us and Pom had come on board and she was in charge of marketing I just said to her like okay there's your marketing budget let's do it properly and at first I thought let's doing it properly would be just getting a good photographer which we did but increasingly getting the stylist and just all that extra over stuff that we never used to do, I just think if you're going to spend that money on a photo shoot, you've got to go all in and you've got to do it right. And I suppose we're fortunate because when it was just me before Pom was really taking on that role, I just didn't have the headspace to kind of pivot and do all that. I look back and I see some projects where we had them photographed and they're not really very good. The photos, the project was beautiful, but the, <laughs> the photos don't really do it justice. And it's, oh, that was money wasted in effect. It's like every cent spent on a cheap-ish or cheaper result is a bit of a waste completely. <laughs> you may as well just double down and go the premium option. And it hurts. It does hurt. And it's nice to say that. It's a, but, and it's a challenge. But I just think when we've tried to cut corners and in the past... Well, I'll say before I was involved, <laughs> there are a few corners cut every now and then, not all the time, sometimes. And it really was just throwing away the money. It, even if it was a lesser fee, those images just then, they don't end up being compelling and they're not much use to anyone really. So they're just documenting it for, for you know, historical purposes. But when you think of the value you get out of a beautiful image and what it does to your business and engagement with clients and the multiple uses of it. It's just priceless in a way. So I'm kind of interested in what you find is, I guess, where you get the best results or where you find that you have the most impact with those new project images. You've done a lot of things, experimented with a lot of different things, getting published in print, getting published in digital, local, mm. international, Instagram. And I just wonder mm. if there's anything that has felt like you've gotten a particularly good response from what yeah. you're doing with your new projects. Well, I, I suppose there's been lots of things in that sense. Um, there's been a few revelations along the way and you always get surprised and can't necessarily predict them. I mean, the first and most obvious one was 
for us Instagram. <laughs> we just organically mucked around with it for a few years and just put the odd thing up every now and then. And we had, I think we got to about 9,000 followers. And I think I had to ask a friend to be like the 9,999th, you know, <laughs> to make us go up to 10,000. And we were thrilled. So then we realised the importance of Instagram and I actually created some rigour around it and um, was really committed to the posting and frequent posting, not over-the-top frequent but, you know, regular weekly posting and stories and really curating nice images and the growth in the audience was immediate and obvious. And we've now, I suppose, we've got about 40,000-odd followers. So we've gone from 10 to 40,000 in, I don't know, a few, maybe about three or four years. I don't know if that's, like, groundbreaking, but it felt pretty good to us. And that's without entering awards and doing the awards circuit and speaking tours and things like that. So it was just purely from rigour around Instagram. And Whenever Glenn gets a phone call or an email, the first thing he'll say is, oh, well, how did you find out about us? And it really was almost like just about every inquiry is like, oh, I saw you on Instagram. (laughs) So, I mean, it's a no-brainer and we don't love Instagram or, and I think maybe Instagram's days are moving on. But for that period, there was a real golden age where Instagram just made us, we, we were noticed we went from being this quiet little secret <laughs> firm to suddenly we were noticed because we were proud of the work, we put it up and we reached the people we wanted to reach. So that was really effective. So that was one learning or revelation and then we've moved on from that. We're still committed, of course, in the background. But then, interestingly, we had a we had a film, a local project film made of some, a project we were involved in and that was quite interesting, wasn't it, Glenn? You got a... Yeah, it went live, I think on a Friday night and I had a phone call on Monday morning saying, I've just seen this video. Can I come in and speak to you about this project I want to do down on the Mornington Peninsula? And the, the guy turned up on Monday morning and by Monday afternoon, I think he was a client and it was just, he just seen this video and it was just so compelling for him. And it made us realize that, oh, okay, videos and, and those sorts of things are possibly going to be really important moving forward. So we've dabbled in it a little bit more. It's so time consuming, but and expensive. But it's clearly it's clearly very compelling and I dare say that we'll be looking to do more of that. I, I never really liked being behind a microphone or in front of a camera, but I've come to the realization that it's it's almost like sitting down in front of someone and having a conversation by doing it on a podcast or on a video and it just living out there on the internet it People stumble across it when they're researching you. And if it's authentic, which I tend to hope that these are, yeah, they get a sense of you. And when they come and meet you, it's the same kind of thing. And then, yeah, that video interaction just seemed to accelerate the kind of... Trust. Well, I was going to say, yeah, the trust, but it also accelerated the kind of process from meeting someone and then signing them up as a client. It It almost happened in a day. Whereas ordinarily it might take weeks weeks to get to that point. So, yeah, it's just been interesting. Like, I don't know, change is is inevitable, but it just seems we we started getting comfortable with Instagram and we thought we had it dialed and then that's (laughs) that kind of dwindled and we're now trying to 
get this video thing, get our heads around this video thing. So, And I think that brings me to the last revelation was just a multi-layered approach. It sounds so obvious, but really you can't just rely on one channel or have your favourite process of ringing up a, a, a mate who's an editor and getting into their magazine in print. It's the whole suite of things layering up and maybe, just maybe, it's starting to pay off. We're, we're feeling, we're getting a sense that it's hard to now put a finger on one singular marketing activity that has made the difference for us. It's the layering up and we've just noticed increased inquiry and website visits and followers. So it, it's just a nice bubbling effect where it's all been stewing away nicely. And I think it's it, it's that multifaceted approach that is the answer if you have the time and the headspace for it, obviously. If you like what you're hearing so far, please make sure to share this episode with colleagues you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave me a five-star review on the Apple Podcast or Spotify app? Every review makes it easier for people to find the show and hear what my amazing guests have to say. I also love hearing your questions and I'm planning more listener Q&A episodes. So please send your questions in to questions at vanityprojects.com and I'll answer them on the show. Yeah, I like it as a good example of how it feels to me a very um, self-sufficient marketing strategy where you're not dependent on becoming a rock star architects or the cool kids that somebody is picking out as the number one firm to pay attention to. You're just going out there and busting your butts off and spending money on good quality um, images and working on video and putting a lot of time into it and styling and doing all of that stuff to really showcase the work. And yeah. then the results are coming from that. I think it's all stemming from that a little bit, it sounds like. Yeah, I think so. And I think we never used to pay attention to marketing. And, and then once we started to pay attention to it, you start to realize there's so many amazing firms out there that are of a, at a similar kind of what I think maybe they're a similar headspace. There's all these amazing firms out there doing all this great stuff. And I think it's pretty obvious, but that whole Instagram sort of social media thing just democratized that ability to get your stuff out there. You weren't reliant on being a cool kid to get into the magazines or win the awards. It just, I think it's made it easier for firms that are a little bit maybe more quiet to really get their message out there. And yeah, I look at the Melbourne stuff and I think, yeah, we're very fortunate to have so many amazing firms out there doing this interesting stuff. And then the challenge is the clients are out there looking at all these yeah. whole bunch of amazing architects going, well, which one will I choose? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty good time to be so, a client. Yeah, yeah. So how the hell do you differentiate yourself to that those clients that are shopping around? So that is the eternal question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is a question that nobody ever has an answer to on the, no, on the podcast, exactly. which I think well, has taught I, me a lot about the concept of differentiation that there's no secret recipe there and you don't arrive at some strategy that you just no. apply because highly yeah. differentiated firms have almost no awareness in my experience of what differentiates them from other firms almost um, in many cases. Or it's not an intentional thing, it's just happened because mm -hmm. of natural sort of factors. But it is a great time to be a client. There is lots of incredible architects out there. But I guess how do you go about navigating that process of deciding which, how do you find the right architect for you? I mean, is it just about having those conversations or, or what aspect of your marketing do you feel or your website or your projects or all of mm -hmm. the above is what is out there allowing people to decide mm -hmm. on that stuff? 
I struggled with coming from a um, branding background. You do focus on point of difference and positioning. And I went back to the gang and I was forever saying, oh, we've got to work out our point of difference. And what is it about us that would make a client choose us over all these other amazing architects? And we could never answer that question, just to reiterate what you were saying. So I suppose we started we're trying to work out what we weren't. That helped a little bit. And we still can't say what we are, but we've probably got more confidence in the fact that we were we were really quite humble and reluctant just about reaching out full stop to clients. So there's this, this almost this shyness that I, I was quite surprised at when I started digging a bit with the team and Glenn and the gang about they do this amazing work and they have these really deep and really quite genuine relationships with the clients and these long and meaningful meetings where they're finding out about their life and how they live and with their daily habits which will inform the architectural solution and they were so they were really quite shy about telling anyone about that so I suppose in one sense we've just come to a place where we don't know our point of difference but we've got more confidence in the way that the way we do things and the way we engage with clients is something we should be proud of. And just to be engaging full stop is something to be proud of because a lot of architects do, I don't want to criticise people, no, but ahead, you Bal. come up with a beautiful, <laughs> the website with the beautiful, monumental, amazing images and the project name and no writing and it's like this art gallery of beautiful, amazing, austere pieces of photography with no people and just perfection. And I don't know that's very welcoming to a client. I think it, it's impressive and it's amazing and there are certain clients that may respond to that. But I think we go out of our way to try and reach out to clients a bit and engage with them from that website level. We've always had a more chatty, friendly, visually friendly website. I'm not necessarily saying the language we use, but just little nuggets and friendly bits and bobs all over the website to try and engage with that client and start a conversation and reveal a bit about ourselves. So the exciting shift is just that purely engaging with clients full stop, whether it's via social media or digital or a website, is really worthwhile pursuing. And some people just don't. <laughs> they wait until the clients come into their office or the uh, client has had the courage to ring up this scary architect that they don't know anything about on the basis of some beautiful photos. And then maybe then some people start that process of engagement, but we try and bring it forward. At the end of the day, I like to think that we're a helpful practice. Like when if you're a client, we're genuinely trying to help you and trying to do our best. But equally, if you stumble across our website, we want it to be a helpful place. We've put a few artic blog articles up. We could probably do a bit more on this mm. when time permits, but we've had a lot of feedback from clients that, or people that have been potential clients. They've said, oh, we, we went to your website and there was a great article about how to write a brief and we've written you a brief and could you come back to us with this? Yeah, we've, we've, in a way we feel for them that it's a bit of a minefield out there for them to choose. And whilst it's a very exciting position for them to be in, they've got this budget and they've got this project they want to do, we need to almost reach out to them and make their job easier and help them have more conviction around their choice because it's quite overwhelming. And then you're embarking on this really long relationship that's, what, two years plus type relationship. So they've really got to trust you 
and um, we've got to show them that they can trust us in any way we can. So in terms of that ending up being a point of difference, you could look at the market and think that maybe if we thought about the category that you're in, single, um, private residential, at that higher budget range, that starts to narrow down the competitive group quite a bit. And then you go, then within that group, we're the most helpful and approachable, maybe. <laughs> so maybe that's where you get down to that point where you go, oh, we're different. That's mm. our thing. That's what mm. makes us different to the others that they might be considering. Yeah. I always found it bizarre the first time we got a testimonial from a client. What they spoke about was so different to what I thought they would talk about. I thought they'd say, oh, the house is lovely and it works and it's beautiful. But this anecdote was like this, our client was, she was recounting the story of talking to her friend who was also going through the building process and the design process. And her friend was exasperated that she was doing all this running around trying to find taps and tiles. And our client just said, oh, really? That's not my experience of working with our architect at all. They just, they're just so helpful and they just take all the stress off, off the process. It was that general vibe that we were just wonderfully helpful and made her life a lot easier and it was almost like yes of course they're going to do an amazing house with beautiful spaces and all that sort of stuff but it was the kind of experience that she had through the process that she was most enamored with and I thought that was really interesting and it made me think oh yeah okay well that's maybe one of our core things is that we try and take the stress off our clients and unfortunately we wear a lot of the stress in doing that but that's that's what that's probably what we do and that's how we approach it yeah sometimes i'll be having conversations with architects about maybe you should write some advice or share some advice or give some helpful tips or do whatever trying to take that more approach and they might say that oh well that's only really good for attracting sixty thousand dollar kitchen renos that's not how you get bigger, better quality projects. And I don't know, there seems to be this like misconception that bigger client, bigger budgets, better clients, they're so above that they don't need any help. And then no, they look and no. they don't, and they see a, a helpful approachable architect and they think, oh, they work with smaller clients than me. There's just this no, weird think, idea yeah. out there, but you know, let's well, dispel think, it. Look, it probably, yeah. yeah, it's probably about what type of information you help them with. I mean, they're still I think one of our pieces is like how to write a brief for an architect. So that doesn't like for a $3 million house, that's really important. It's more important than just for a kitchen. And the process of working with an architect, what it's like, what mm. to expect. I, I think some of those big questions, everyone struggles with them, no matter yeah. how much money or how big your project is. You mentioned earlier, Pom, that it may be the visual in terms of the website or in terms of other things that we're down to earth in that approach and we make it accessible for people. But you mentioned that it may not necessarily be the language itself. And mm. I'm interested because you're writing newsletters, media packs, social media updates, website copy, project pages, like just copy, copy across the board. And I'm sure it's a bit of a fine balance between keeping it kind of high-end and luxe feeling mm. and also keeping it easier to understand and approachable. How have you approached that or where do we begin in terms of getting that tone right? Um, look, I'll be honest and say it's been very organic, yep. <laughs> the approach, starting with us all writing bits and pieces ourselves, which I think most architectural firms would do, especially on the smaller side of things. Trouble is then you get all these different voices. So you'll get some someone in the team that might write a very highbrow architectural description of a, a project and then plonk that on the website and then someone else will write a chatty 
warm and fuzzy, more simple one, and then you chuck that on the website. So I keep culling and trying to get a similar tone of voice. In an ideal world, you would have, you'd sit down and you would have worked out your tone of voice and then you'd brief this brilliant writer that is amazing and writes all your web copy with the correct tone of voice for a website and then some more, I suppose, in-depth project pieces that for media releases or architectural awards. But I just don't think there's a kind of single solution to that. So it's a bit like photographers. You choose the right photographer for the right brief. And similarly, I think writers, it's very much the same thing. So, for example, I've got a writer I outsource project profiles to. So he just writes like a one-pager and that's a dry enough piece that it can form the basis of a media release or it could form the basis of a, an award entry. And then I might take that and just edit it and make it a little bit more friendly for the website. But that's almost like the starting point, that one page project. And then I suppose I'm comfortable enough editing it for the website and just getting that tone of voice a little bit less technical and cutting out really dry bits. But yeah, I suppose it's really about hiring the right writer for the right type of project. I don't know if that's answered No, your absolutely. Well, it's interesting because that's a decision that so many firms make. It's do I get somebody to help with copy or would it end up not feeling authentic to the brand? Should we do it ourselves? And there's always this kind of debate around yeah. that. But yeah, it's quite a hot potato because sorry to butt in. Yeah. I, I know we have circled around this ourselves. And look, in an ideal world, someone from the team that worked on the project sits down and writes a piece and that's the a, a good solution because obviously architecturally it's the pure expression of their vision and technically correct but we just haven't got the time everyone's so busy doing the doing so we we've tried to streamline the process a little whereby this writer will say ring up one of the main architects on the project and interview them and it's fairly quick, isn't it's, it, Glenn? It's, it's become really efficient. Yeah, it's super efficient. And because we've done about five or six projects with him now, and they're pretty quick interviews, and he he's starting to understand how we work and the chatty kind of nature of it, and it just makes it so much quicker. I'd rather have a 20-minute interview just, just rambling on about the project and the anecdotes within it. And, uh, yeah, it comes back a couple of days later, Thousand, thousand words and yeah as pom says she might have to do a little bit of bit. polishing or chopping but it's yeah it's an efficient way of getting it out there and i think this comes back to this idea that we've realized now we've just got to keep getting stuff out there mm. as a marketing strategy whether that's videos or content or copy or photos so looking for ways to take away the re the roadblocks has been mm. something i think that's been really interesting for us over the last couple of years yeah yeah when I uh, came on board I originally thought well there's nothing for me to do here I just twiddle my thumbs and then I realized oh my god there's a lot that needs to be done because it was typical of a lot of architectural firms everyone was an architect so really marketing activities like writing or going out to a photo shoot they were all taking architects away from doing architecture and therefore it was relegated a bit to well, just a bit of time wasting and taking you off the main focus. So it just wasn't practical. So I, 
I suppose we've tried to be a bit more down to earth about the fact that we do need to outsource pieces of work or projects or pieces of writing. And as long as I'm like, well, I'm overseeing it creatively, I, I have that feeling for is it the right tone? Is it the right feel? So you still need that critical person in your organisation overseeing it, I suppose, as a bit of a creative director in a way or marketing director or whatever the title would be. So it goes through that funnel. But I really do think you you can, it's just really pays off to outsource even small pieces of work, just small bits of yeah. writing. If it gets it done, it's worth yeah. doing. It gets that outsourcing's worth doing. And it's such a powerful medium and purpose you know good writing and good images that's that we, we live or die by them I mean that's how we that's how we win new work so it is so important it's such a big multiplier of your capacity as well Pom doing outsourcing and managing that but ultimately not trying to take over too many of those the actual doing mm. of those jobs yourself and trying to rely on yeah. other people to help you with that as much as possible. And then just managing yeah. all of that is itself a massive job, but a project. <laughs> at least yeah. you're able to have so much more output. It's amazing. So compared to so many practices, just the level of investment in content creation is through the charts with Chamberlain, I feel. I think we should preface that with we're very fortunate that Pom, we're married. It's our business. I, I come cheap. <laughs> yeah, like, like we wouldn't have done, we've never done this, but now we're doing it because we've got this kind of resource that's, you see these these great firms that have got husband and wife architect teams, but we kind of, I feel like having POM as, as a, an outsider from the architectural world, but in that kind of creative space, it, it was just, we were so, I was so fortunate to have that. And then for so long to not be using it, I was thinking, what, what, how stupid am I? And now we've got it going. And I think it has been the catalyst for being on more people's radar. So I think you've got to be fortunate to have that resource. But I suppose so we're not saying go out and marry a graphic designer. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were saying don't because don't marry an architect, marry a graphic marry designer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but if you're in a position where you are in a firm full of just architects, which is typically the way it is, don't be shy about getting your hands dirty using outsourcing pieces of work. It's done by professionals and you can still oversee it. I think there's a lot of fear and there was initially a little bit of resistance with us for outsourcing pieces of writing or because people felt that somehow it may not be whether it's genuine enough or whether it would get too marketing speak mm. in tone. But as long as you remember that you're a gatekeeper and you can still have a look at that and you can still work over it, but it just takes that oh, we would just circle around pieces of copy for ages and things would just never get done. So even if you outsource it and you feel like, look, the tone's not 100% us, you've still got the basic structure and you can just work over it. You mentioned earlier, Glenn, that carving out a marketing budget and going, oh, that's it, that's what it's going to be and we're going to, we're going to spend that and put that to work. Do you have any tips in terms of deciding what the right amount is or is it just do you have any kind of rule of thumb there or is it just this is what we think we need to do? No, initially it was an idea that if you put aside a bunch of money, didn't matter what it was, you felt less guilty about spending money on things and it was just a discipline that I said, I think I said 10 grand for the first year or, or it was just a random figure but I by just portioning that off and then letting the person that needs to spend it, I felt that was a good way of making sure that it was prioritised and we would use that money and we wouldn't constantly be looking over our shoulder. We put it in the budget for the year and it just it was there. Now, there's no science behind it, but 
there's this idea that it's an important part of developing the practice and sustaining the practice. So it's as important as the kind of CAD budget or the whatever budget you want to put in there. It was just that discipline of paying attention to it and prioritizing it. Interested in changing the conversation a little bit and looking at room. Now, difficult project to explain in a nutshell, as we've mentioned previously, but Rooms are a, a, a sort of a new business that you've been working on in, in partnership with. In fact, I'll let you introduce it just in terms of maybe the backstory on kind of over the last couple of years, where Rooms started and what sure. it is and how it sits differently to Chamberlain. Yeah, so we were approached by a guy named Elliot who had this great idea to try and engage more people with architects. He, he was he was coming from a volume building background and he had seen this uh, gap in the market where people were wanting to spend big dollars on beautiful houses but didn't have the appetite to work with an architect, whether that was from a bad experience or from a time point of view. So his idea was, well, let's curate a series of designs and apply the volume builder model to it and we'll be able to deliver an architectural how design or response at a price point that's probably below what a one-off boutique uh, bespoke house would be and the clients can start straight away they don't have to go through the whole process with an architect and fair play to him there's a substantial amount of people out there that it's really resonated with them so he approached us initially to design five houses we said yeah it sounds really interesting it was something that we were always interested in like how can we get more of our work out there to more people and we got going with it and then we got really involved in it from a business side of it as well so that we pom and i are involved in the business and that's pom then become this marketing guru for room <laughs> and yeah it's been a very interesting few years working on that and seeing how that's parlayed into our practice room doesn't have a body of work it relied on really sexy renders it was incredibly successful, that marketing campaign, initial that initial launch. That really opened my eyes and our eyes to what could be done with renders and, and we adopted that. But, yeah, I think it has some very interesting parallels with what we're doing from a marketing point of view. Yeah, so the idea was that you would be coming up with these five designs and offering them to the public sort of expression of interest or sign up to potentially get one of these live in one of these projects but there was no physically built anything yet you were selling no. that design and, and promoting it through the local project through instagram through online mm. advertising through all sorts of things so you saw a good return on investment in spending whatever 20 grand for 10 images times five projects or something along those lines because <laughs> i think that, that, i think yeah. it's it, at the outset i'm sure it seems like that is an absolutely gargantuan amount of money to be spending on renders, but you picked up on the success of that kind of initial campaign. And you, were you blown away that a project that doesn't actually really physically exist can become one of the most popular <laughs> kind of groups of projects out there? Yeah, it completely blew our minds. It's a weird marketing dilemma. Like when I wear my Chamberlain hat, everyone wants to see your body of work, your beautifully photographed buildings. They want that reassurance. They want to tour through some of your um, houses and make, it makes you feel more substantial and trustworthy. And so here we were, no one had ever heard of us. We made up a name on the basis of some good thinking, but, you know, no one had ever heard of us. We had an Instagram audience of zero 
and some beautiful renders. <laughs> it's like how do you sell something substantial and a whole model and a, a new model that doesn't really exist, these limited edition homes that are only replicated, you know, a, a few times? How do you do this out of nowhere? So I had to scratch my head very hard <laughs> and after panicking completely, we hit Instagram really hard really quickly and Instagram did I mean in two and a half years I just worked out we went from zero to 65,000 followers which was pretty good considering no one knew who we were we were a brand new business so yeah it's just a, a different approach and it's also we're not selling a service as such we're selling what's well, a bit more like a product which is interesting <laughs> I, I, I think I think that narrative that we I'm probably not the narrative but just the idea the strength of the idea that Elliot and that that sort of niche that Elliot had identified I think was really compelling and I think we met his idea with a strong set of imagery and then there was a narrative that we worked around it, around that and I think that whole combination of it came together and yeah, caught on like wildfire. We're currently building, I think we, we've got our first, the first room house will be complete at the end of this year. And that'll be really interesting too, because then all of a sudden we'll have potentially a have this house. a real house to show people yep. and photography. And the big question will be, how does the real house compare to the renders? <laughs> <laughs> that age old question. And I hope it'll be a bit better than some of the developer projects that you see around town where the renders have very little bearing on the actual building at the end of the day. Mm. So Yeah. Yeah, but it's interesting to see the response as well, just in terms of putting a different model out there into the market. And rather than five, 10, 15 inquiries a month doing really well as an architecture practice, you're dealing mm. with hundreds of inquiries uh, from people mm. that are signing up to get yeah. more information about this or are interested in it. And was there a moment there where you go, oh, actually, you know, marketing architecture, it's actually not that difficult. There is actually a lot of appetite out there for it. I guess, I guess it makes you reflect back at the normal practice and go, why does there not seem to be as much demand and excitement for the traditional model as there is for this new model, which seems to just be like going out the door, selling like hotcakes. I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? It is. It is. And I think the inquiry level for room is off the charts. Like we don't necessarily, like Elliot's got a whole system where he takes all the inquiry, but the numbers are phenomenal compared to Chamberlain Architects inquiry levels. It's different though. It's very different because the the sales process is a whole different ball game. Like there's huge inquiry, like masses of inquiry, but filtering, there's, it seems like the sales process takes 12 to 18 months. Mm. <laughs> so rather than Glenn's great story of the mm. local project video where it was viewed on, we released on Friday and he had signed up someone by Monday afternoon, we start with this huge funnel of inquiry and interest and engagement via, say, Instagram or email inquiries, phone calls, and then meetings and countless meetings. And then a lot of people, I think this is where the difference shows, a lot of people circle around room for months and maybe even a year or 18 months before they trust enough to jump in. And maybe that's the difference between a, an established business with um, 
built projects versus this new model that we're proposing with a lot of sound thinking and some beautiful plans and documents and complicated relationships com- with builders. Yeah, that, like it's a lot harder to digest to the tune of 12 to 18 months. <laughs> so it is quite a different beast. If that was a startup architecture firm, that's that's effectively what we're talking about. Yeah. That is a startup architecture firm with a compelling narrative and some beautiful renders. And yeah, even if it's one even house. Even if it's even one house. Like yeah. that is a huge amount of inquiry that yeah. it was generated. Yeah. And yeah, I still, yeah, it's as an exercise in marketing and generating inquiry, it's pretty amazing. It is, but then you're still going to land the sales, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> so that's the flip side. Yeah, but <laughs> I think. It's one thing but, to generate but, inquiry. But I think without inquiry, you're not going to get sales. No. And true. selling someone on a house that's one and a half million bucks, that's a big sale. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm Once again, glass is half full. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm super optimistic. <laughs> well, if you took a project that you had designed speculatively like room and Mm. then you rendered it with phenomenal renders and then put some advertising budget behind it and set up a page saying, would you be interested in this house? New business or not new business, I still think you would be generating a substantial number of inquiries because obviously the level of commitment is a bit lower to just express interest in something then you would have a sales yeah, process. Yeah. But the idea, I think the fun, one of the fundamental differences between the two is it's the there's an intangibleness about the outcome of engaging Chamberlain Architects in that I come to you yeah. as a client, I don't know what the final outcome is going to be. Whereas mm-hmm. then I have to look at your previous finished work, but I know that I'm not getting that. So there's a sort of a gap there. Whereas if we mm-hmm. come in with here is the design, we've designed it in anticipation of a client, would you mm-hmm. like it? There's a certainty and concreteness about that, that, that there that mm-hmm. I think is just so different. And maybe a certain category of clients prefer to actually see before they buy. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. We feel that, and this is the delicate thing about Room, it's not in competition to architecture. It's not meant to be head to head. It's meant to be offering a different pathway for some people that actually probably are terrified of the architectural process or just want to just want certainty, especially with design before they buy. Mm. And they don't want to go on that long, meaningful two-year arduous relationship. Typically our clients do and they love it and, and we love it. We love it too. So that's why it's all about bringing good design to more people and to people that maybe wouldn't necessarily go to architects. So it is a different type of a beast and it's a different type of a a market. But if we can bring good design to more people, well, hey, that's pretty damn good. Yeah. That's what we're excited about. Yeah, I've certainly noticed when I've met, like I've had meetings with room clients and they are just completely different types of people than the people I meet with in Chamberlain Architects. Those people that are coming to room are really craving the certainty that model is is attempting to deliver. Whereas the people that are coming to Chamberlain want to go on a journey, they're excited about it. So they're both fundamentally interested in getting a great house with some beautiful spaces and a lovely sense of materiality and all those things that good architecture and design delivers. They're just approaching it from a different, completely 180 degree opposite direction of what their experience is going to be. So it's the client experience, I think, that's probably the biggest difference. Mm. You mentioned that it gets you thinking about certain things that you change in Chamberlain's marketing in terms of maybe realizing the power of renders and I'm sure there's Mm -hmm. other things as well. But like, is there anything that's 
any part of the room project or success of it so far that you go, oh, I'm stealing that? Yeah, I, it's this concept of transparency seems to resonate with people. Like with room, there, it's like we've got a build price. That's that's what it is. You sign up and we'll get you going. But this constant, what I'm hearing from these clients is, oh, we just we don't have the transparency, you know, with an art. We don't know what's going to go on. And so I've tried to flip that back into conversations I have with clients now about transparency. And because we're working with a team of estimators at Room, we, we having it, we've got a little bit more insight into the costings currently. And so I can be a little bit more upfront and, and authoritative with that kind of information to the client. I met with a client recently and I said, I think your project's going to be $6,000 a square meter based on what you're looking at. And they were shocked and, and they didn't want to necessarily listen to that. But I stuck to my guns and, and said, well, no, this is the reasoning and here's what I'm seeing. And eventually they came around to considering that as, as something. It just means that the process is the project, if that comes off, will be starting out on a much stronger footing because I haven't drawn a line in the sand and, and said, look, that's that's where it's at. And I had I have this kind of constant battle. Do you do you be wishy-washy because you're scared to tell them the budget's gonna be, you know, huge, or do you just be upfront and and I think that being upfront and that transparency and that sort of honesty around that sort of stuff just gets the project going a lot better. And I think that's where you hear a lot of these problems of working with an architect in problems in inverted commas. And it's, it's that kind of surprise that no one really wants. And it comes about from that initial discussion. So yeah, the room, that, that sort of sense of transparency and, and clarity is, has been something that's been really interesting to try and bring back to Chamberlain. Mm. Guys, we're at the end of our time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No worries. Great, Thanks, thank Dave. It's been, it's been fun. fun. Oh, there we go. Yeah, like a married couple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was my conversation with Glenn and Pom from Chamberlain Architects. If you'd like to learn more about Chamberlain Architects, you can visit chamberlainarchitects.com.au or follow them on Instagram at chamberlainarchitects. You can also learn more about Room at room.com.au. That's Room with two U's. Or at room underscore living on Instagram. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.